Welcome to the Atlas Project. It's a new world. To navigate it, we need new maps. Each episode, best-selling author Chris Katana and Scott Jones saw 50,000 feet above the immediate headlines in politics, economics, science, and society. The Atlas Project aims to reveal the big picture of where humanity is headed and the choices we all need to face. Chris, my friend, welcome back to England. I say that like I'm in England, but you, I mean, I'm welcoming you home even though ba, 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 ba. I'm not in I'm in your home. Mm-hmm. But, but, you know, the you know, Prince of Wales lives just around the corner. The Prince of Wales does? I, <laughs> you, you saw the, the story, uh, the, the tweet Donald Trump talked about the Prince of Wales, but he spelt it like the, uh, like the uh, ocean mammal as opposed to the country of the United Kingdom. Yeah, that, and I also heard he did not have a stellar conversation with the Prince of Wales on climate change. Well, I don't know if I don't know if anyone has stellar conversations with your president. I mean, that's not. I, I guess that. Sean I guess, Hannity, I guess Sean that is Hannity a criticism. Does. Yeah, Hannity has stellar conversations. You, you and I have different definitions of stellar. Then I think. <laughs> you know, that's okay. That's okay. Hey, Scott. Well, at least it's, like, uh, it's good to at reconnect. At least Hannity enjoys conversing with him. So I got to apologize to you and to all of our listeners for uh, not not managing to get in studio with you for a couple of weeks here. Well, once you were at a whiskey bar in Tokyo, that's I was I, so I was in Tokyo, which was really fascinating. Uh, I was there speaking to uh, a kind of a, a room full of Asian chief technology officers. And, and then, of course, the whiskey bar. Uh, there were many things about the Tokyo trip that I could get into, um, and, and we can. Um, and then uh, a couple of days later, I found myself on the uh, coast of Portugal um, in a room full of several hundred entrepreneurs talking about um, what they were doing to um, you, you know, change the world and create wealth at the same time, which was great. But, I mean, talk about fabulous venue. The, you know, Portugal has some pretty terrific beaches. That's the first takeaway I've got from from that trip. Um, and actually, I'm just uh, coming back uh, today from uh, a meeting with uh, a bunch of, um, I guess you'd say, sustainability practitioners. Uh, we had this amazing global summit yesterday here in London. Um, you know, we had kind of like the... Uh, uh, some like the chief uh, innovation and product development officers for you know big big consumer goods companies like Unilever or you know big auto manufacturers. Uh, CEO of Condé Nast uh, met up with him yesterday in the same room. Everybody talking about basically the climate crisis and the environmental crisis and 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 you know what are some of the big um, transitions that we're going to have to make just in terms of how we think about the economy, how we value material flows, how we kind of, you know, figure out how to eliminate a lot of waste and just become much more efficient um, at at a societal level in our economies. Um, And so my head's swimming a bit at the moment. Um, And it's... uh, What did you eat in Portugal? A lot of fish. Oh my god, such I figured. good fish. You know, like it's yeah, like caught that morning and on your plate by lunchtime. It's good. Wow, that's exciting. Hmm. So you were talking about AI with some of these folks and tech technology and how it sort of might relate to 
some of these crises and changes. And we were talking just before we started recording our conversation about this amazing deep fake video of Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> yeah, isn't it amazing? It's pretty crazy. Uh, I mean, it's so, you know, first thing that's amazing to me is the technology. Well, maybe it's not amazing, but the technology is coming along really fast, right? The, because I think it was several months ago, was it about a year ago that some of the first deep fake videos began to appear? Uh, yeah. of, of course, it was pornography because it seems that porn is always what is driving the, <laughs> the frontier of. It's always number one. Porn is always like the number one. I, for a while, like spirituality was number two. Maybe it's because people feel guilty after. After, after watching they the porn? Finished with the porn or something and they kind of <laughs> say, save my soul. But, but yeah, I mean, porn is always seems to be what drives innovation these hmm. days. Yeah. So, and I guess what it is, is that, you know, the, um, the, uh, the toolkit, the basic toolkit for developing, uh, your own algorithm to, you know, take, take that video of Mark Zuckerberg and, um, ha have it say something different, um, have his, his body and his, and his head and his lips move to say what you want him to say rather than what he actually did say. Um, you know, that, that, that toolkit is pretty openly available. Um, and, the, the hardest part is, uh, you know, gathering, you know, I guess enough, enough video of, of Mark and enough audio of his voice that you can start to, the algorithm can start to figure out, okay, this is, this is how Mark moves and this is what Mark sounds like. And once it figures that out, then, then it's, it's pretty straightforward to, to, uh, you know, play it like a puppet. And, uh, I, I mean, I guess the first thing that one thinks about, when you see something like that is how, how, um, how quickly is this phenomenon going to spread? Right. I mean, how much more of, you know, artificially created video of people saying things that sound like they might be real. Um, are we going to see in entertainment, um, and, and, and in news and, and in our, in our politics and our, and our and our public discourse, and it, it to me it's it's kind of you know this is one of the challenges as we shift from uh, a text culture to a screen culture. Yeah, and once you get it out there, it's not whether or not it gets debunked. Once you get it out there, right, it is in people's conscience. It's like the thing about in America right now. Donald Trump made these comments that he would take information from the foreign government in the next election that you don't call you don't call the fbi i've never called the fbi in my life yeah and that must I mean, have been I've a fake right because he wouldn't actually right. say well that. <laughs> what's funny because now what everybody says is on, on, on like fox you know and fox News and some of the other conservative talking kind of spheres is that well what about what hillary did with the dossier and far well i you know it, it's not at all a similar thing i mean hillary hired a firm global gps which was originally employed by republicans in the primary to do opposition research which everybody does they employed a former british intelligence agent no longer working for the government uh you know who had contacts in russia he got some intelligence on up so the whole thing it, it's not accepting no, there was no foreign government stuff and there's no quid pro quo because hillary paid the firm there's the data but once you say it enough it's in people's consciousness, so you you just need to get it in there as part of the discussion, right? And, right? and you know, and, and that's the power of it. And, and even what you've just described is kind of 
old world, right? I see, yes, right, right, right. Yes, I said that, and now I have to explain how why I said that wasn't crazy. Whereas, you know, maybe we very quickly get into a world where, you know, you've got another dimension of plausible deniability, which is, yeah. uh, yes, you, you may have seen me say that, but that was fake. So it's kind of like, you know, I, right. I can pick and choose. I've got yet another exit door if I don't like this conversation. Oh, right. You're saying, yeah, you could say, yeah, okay. So you could say, yeah, no, that was fake news. Yeah. You could say, you could say the, the real thing was fake. Right. Yeah. Right. And I mean, and it's just another. It's, That's it's, like, it's, what was that song? Was it Shaggy? Was it me? Dun, 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 in the shower. <laughs> was it me? Dun, 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 dun. Mm. Was it me? We need uh, we we need more uh, I don't know Patreon supporters or something so that we can start to afford to pay the royalties for exactly you know, we could play a shaggy <laughs> have the DJ throw some stuff in to to riff with you but right so it just it just where so one of the one of the possibilities is we are we are walking into this space where there is even more more freedom more freedom to disassociate ourselves with what we've done in the past. Which, you know, in, in, in some ways is really powerful because there is um, – now we have such a digital record of ourselves that one of the questions, you know, has been for a number of years, well, you know, what does this mean for my privacy, right? I mean, employers can look me up on Facebook and, and Instagram or Snapchat and see all this stuff about me that I didn't want to reveal as part of their hiring decision, Um and, uh, and 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 so now you know there are pros and cons to it. One of the pros is that people can say, well, you know, there there's. Are you sure that what you've seen was real? Because it might have just been some mix that somebody did, and they were playing with my name or playing with my image or things like that. Which I think just feeds into mm, uh, a culture of increasing slipperiness about reality, and 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 slipperiness about. What is the relationship between the messages we receive and the world as it exists out there? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's interesting because we're always interpreting the world, right? I mean, this is sort of the basic, I guess, kind of Kantian insight, right? I mean, probably, you know, that that we don't just experience phenomena out there. They're, they're going through our own... Hmm sort of filter and making sense of them. But then what if we're now it's like we're interacting with somebody else's interpretation of the, it's like we're, we're interpreting an interpretation of an interpretation. I mean, it's, hmm. it becomes slightly trippy. Yeah. And I, I mean, I guess a, another way to talk about it is to say, you know, so these, these powerful new technologies that we are introducing into society, you know, like, like, um, like artificial intelligence, they, they, they interact with our culture, right? They become, they become, um, what's an elegant way to say it? I don't know. Somebody will let us know. But, but you know, what, what I mean is they, 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 they start to become agents of, um, of cultural transformation. So you think of, you know, the, the algorithms that have, um, biases within them let's say i'm you know i'm doing a google image search for in fact let's try that right now because i wonder how how good google has gotten at removing biases so if i do a google image search for professor um yeah mostly men 
<laughs> right? And and so that kind of reinforces my stereotype of what a professor is. And so when I'm talking to people about professors, I'm thinking about that reinforced bias. And so it reinforces again over and over. And, you know, so 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 the technology, especially the technology to kind of recognize what patterns we use and to reliably reproduce them, it, it, it becomes a, a force in how we, uh, even when we're not using the technology, think about the world, talk with one another about the world, how we represent it to ourselves, the, the conversations we have, what we think is important. And, and, and so it, 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 it becomes sort of, you know, woven into um, and becomes a, a force of uh, our cultural development as well. Yeah, it's interesting. In your newsletter that deals with this, you you talk about AI being a thinking machine and you have these this picture that looks like matrixy or something, right? Like of a sort of digitized organic brain sort of thing. And you're like, well, it's not really accurate based on some reading you've just done. So you, you sketch out really AI is more like this and you just write out a very complex equation, right? right. That, that, <laughs> that kind of demystifies it. Although I think that you could do that with human thought too, right? You could say, well, really what human thought is, is electrochemical, you, you know, right. these, these biochemical reactions. So everyone should do this. And I, I think this is actually a great, a great exercise to help us think more deeply about any number of topics. But you take a topic like artificial intelligence and throw it into Google image search and just see what images pop up. And that's a, you know, that's a crude, but in some ways startlingly accurate kind of indicator of so this is what society thinks this is society's conception of that word um at, at least in visual terms and you, and you do it with ai or artificial intelligence and it's it's pretty clear you know how society thinks about it it it, it is all images or mostly images of you know the human brain or the shape of the human brain with you know electro circuits or 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 kind of some blue glow or gears inside it right the, so it is this idea that the machines are beginning to think like us or that the machines are developing an awareness and a consciousness and an autonomy like us and and that is both um you know that that picture in our head it inspires uh, a lot of hype about you know how 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 AI is going to liberate us from all mundane work and it's going to do all these great things for us and solve you know cancer twenty years faster and 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 and, and you know all this multiplication of human brain power because we've managed to reproduce it in the computer uh, and the same image also um, provokes a lot of hysteria right because the robots are going to take over the world. And, and what's going to be left for the humans. And yeah, in, in, in my last essay, my last map, I, I, what I, the point I'm trying to make is that, so the problem with both of those conversations is that neither of them is grounded in the reality of what AI is today, which is, you know, as you say, basically it's, it's a, uh, it's a mathematic equation. Basically it's taking, it's taking a bunch of data and it's, you know, doing, I mean, the, the math listeners are going to quibble with me on this, but it's basically doing, you know, some, some pretty complicated statistical analysis, right? It's trying to find, it's trying to find, you know, if you've ever done a regression and you've got a sort of a bunch of... I, I regress all the time. Yeah. 
I feel like that's usually that. That's my that's my raison d'être. Uh, my reason for being is regression. But like, I I mean, I think that even even I'm a social scientist, and even I've done you know some regression analysis where there's like you know a bunch of data points that are plotted on a graph, and you try to find the line right that you can draw between those data points. Um, and 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 that's all. That's all AI is doing at the moment. It's just you know, it's a, it's a pretty complicated line, and it's not a two dimensional line. It's kind of a you know, it's it's a multi dimensional line that's trying to divide the data into you know into categories. You know, that stuff is spam. You know, this stuff is is not spam. Or you know, this this bottle is made of plastic. This bottle is made of of uh, glass, right? Or um, this is a road and that is the sidewalk, right? I mean, so much of what the AI is doing for us is is really just taking a bunch of data and trying to classify it into different categories. And then, and then you know, what do I do with the road? Drive on it. What do I do with the sidewalk? Try not to drive on it, right? Right. You talk, you, yeah, right. What we're often trying to do is make more optimal choices, mm. right? Like if we're talking about driverless cars, we analyze humans hit the brake here. Very often, a better time to hit the brake would be here. Or humans buy or sell the stock here for maximum gain. You know, it, this is actually the, the the optimal point. And so you you wind up sort of a lot of AI, right? In, yeah. in lots of spheres, is, is, is attempted optimization. That's right. It's sort of it's saying that you know help help the machine should be able to make a better selection than us because it has more capacity to kind of process much more data you know whereas for us there's just a certain limit to how much we can look at and bring into our decision process there really isn't a limit for for the computers you just keep adding processing power and there's so much data now that you figure like if we if if we you know allow the ai to read through all the news that's available today then maybe it will make a better decision about when to buy that stock than 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 i would so so it is most of the math these days um, is about trying to uh, make a selection and to make it better than the human could. And the idea that the more the more of that it does, the more selecting that it does, the better trained the algorithm becomes, and it gets closer and closer, much faster than the human could to that, you know, that fabled optimal choice. Which, which, I mean, that's what the math is trying to do. You have to tell it, you know, I want you to get this result as close to some optimum as possible, and then it goes away and tries to, tries to find, find the best value. And the challenge for that. So can I tell? Yeah, go ahead. Can I tell you a story that I promise will relate? <laughs> but it might be hard to see at first. But that do you know that's that, never been a criterion for us on this show before. But. Exactly. Why start? Why, why start? Why start now? Like. Um, <laughs> You know, do you know the group Tommy James and the Shen, the Shandells? Shandells. Okay, so this is uh, this story starting very badly because the honest answer. Yeah, is... it's they sang like a Crimson and Clover and uh, like a bunch of sort of sixties pop rock songs, and they sang a famous song that Billy had. Lots of people remade. Moni Moni. Oh yeah. You know, here she comes now singing Moni. Yeah. Keep going. So Tommy J- James <laughs> talks about how he made that song. And they made the, they wrote the song first and they were looking for, it was driving them crazy because they loved the the tune. They loved the melody they wrote, Hmm. the song, the composition. 
they were looking for like a name, like Sloopy or something, you so know, good. From, from like one of these. So good. Yeah, like a party rock sort of thing. <laughs> he said it had to be a two-syllable girl's name that was memorable and silly and kind of stupid sounding. So we knew what kind of word we had. Everything they came up with though sounded so bad. So they were frustrated. Richie Cordell, Tommy James's songwriting partner, uh, he and Richie Cordell go up to his apartment at 888 8th Avenue, New York. And they're disgusted. They throw their guitars down. They go on the terrace to light up a cigarette. And they look up to the sky. And they look leftward. And the first thing they saw was the Mutual of New York Insurance Company. M-O-N-Y. Oh. <laughs> With a dollar sign in the middle of the O. Huh. Huh. And, huh. The, and they gave you the time and the temperature. And they were like, that's it. Money. <laughs> Money, money. And later he said, you know, if we had looked right, Maybe the song would have been called Hotel Taft. <laughs> <laughs> um, Which, you know, it's, it's interesting because you, you, you promised talk about, me that this would be relevant somehow. <laughs> well, you talked about how optimization can sometimes make things more fragile. Mm. That, that, mm. that, you know, the more we try to analyze what we think is the best data set and we try to sort of, for lack of a better word, dehumanize it, right? Mm. Just take sort of the subjective mm. variability out of it. We actually might make things more fragile. Yeah. Like, what AI would say, look leftward up to the sky in an insurance company building to make a pop hit? Right. Well, yeah. So, <laughs> there's, no, there's no equation for something like that, right? So totally. So, I mean, this is, I mean, this is to some extent, you know, a great example of just the infancy of our relationship with, with AI in that, you know, very quickly um, there, there's sort of, there, there, there's two broad reactions. I mean, one is a skepticism and a fear. Um, which is maybe unearned, and the other is a kind of unearned confidence in the uh, results that the computer gives back to us, because the computer must be smarter at these things than we are. And you know the the uh, the, the the two big and obvious doubts that we should have about the you know the 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 power of this awesome tool we've built to get us closer than we can get to, to something optimal uh, is one is that, you know, optimal probably doesn't exist. First of all, in the re in, in reality, I mean, optimal is uh, an idea for some simplified model of reality. But once you kind of open yourself up to you know, kind of the full torrent of complexity of the real world, there's probably no such thing as optimal. And, and if there is, you know, then given how quickly and how much is changing in the world, it probably only exists for a fraction of a second. This so, is also incidentally and historically over and even currently, like in the intelligent design debates, hmm. the, ad, the advocates of intelligent design. I'm not I'm talking people that believe in the earth is billions of years old and all this stuff, but they they still argue for some sort of design. They always say this refrain and the refrain is intelligent design doesn't mean optimal design hmm. <laughs> that. Right. that, that it, you know that that so much of, of of what we you know of anything that exhibits intelligence and purpose it doesn't necessarily mean optimal. Mm. So 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 that's that's maybe the first maturation that we very quickly need to go through as society when when you know when AI is sold to us, let's do it this way, or let the AI do it for you because it's going to optimize. We should be we need to be asking you know optimizing in what. I'm not sure what the elegant way of asking the question is, but but optimizing in what simple world, right? Because it's optimal within, you know, or assuming, you know, 
ABC and ABC are nothing like reality, but you know, and, and, and sometimes it's useful, right? It's helpful. You know, all models are wrong. Some of them are useful. Um, but we have to be aware that it's not, it's not engaging the whole world the way that you and I do. It's engaging whatever bit of the world that we gave it to look at. And then the other, the other, uh, risk around optimization is, as you say, is, uh, is fragility. Right. If everybody is following the same kind of process to select what we should do, right? You know, uh, buy this stock, or um, you know, date this person, or something. If everybody is 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 following the same strategy to make a selection, then you've got you know you've got this population of people who, instead of doing all sorts of diverse things, are all doing one thing, and if that one thing ever stops being optimal or ever stops working or, you know, some, you know, we do live in a world where all sorts of systemic things are changing all the time. Um, then, then we're all going to bear the, the consequences, right? There's going to be kind of on mass. It's like, whoop, you know, it kind of harkens back to the global financial crisis and sort of 08 and 09. And this was really before the kind of algorithms that we use today, were being deployed to, you know, buy and sell uh, investments. But then there was still a kind of strategy that everyone was widely adopting, which was, you know, we'll, we'll um, issue all of these really risky mortgages, but we'll package them up in a way so that you can kind of get it off your books and make a lot of money. And everybody did that. And because everybody was doing it, when, when that strategy failed, because something changed in the environment, everybody failed. Right, so you had a very fragile financial system. Um, a more base analogy: pure breed pedigree dogs tend to get all sorts of congenital issues. Right, mutts mm. tend to be pretty indestructible. Mm. Like you mm. know, the mixing of DNA, mm. like it's sort of mm. you know it's similar with that. One of the reasons we have you know kind of. Uh, uh, incest laws. You know, you can't marry your <laughs> siblings. So, there's something about mixing that makes for so, stronger DNA. So I think that's so I, I, thousand percent right to move to a kind of you know what's the biological metaphor here? Because in biology, you would say that you know selection is great. Natural natural selection is a real powerful thing, and and you know choosing what is kind of better in a in an environmental context and and doubling down on that that that's important but in in biology in healthy populations you've actually got two forces at work one is the the pressure to select and the other is some kind of mechanism to mix things up right so you've got in biology you've got random mutations and you know you got the mutts you got the mongrels and and you need those random mutations to happen as well because the evolution really happens in some kind of golden zone where those two forces are are both working right it, and and if the selection pressures are too efficient and there's not enough genetic mutation then you get these fragile populations these purebred populations and and at the same time you know if if the selection pressure is too weak, and if, like, if you imagine there's just endless mutation, then you don't get healthy populations either. So there is a balance. Yeah, it's chaos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You just get like any kind of possibly promising structure gets torn apart before it can kind of build up a few more steps. 
um, it would be, you know, like some kind of primordial soup where there was really, really strong solar radiation and no kind of atmosphere to protect, you know, the kind of little structures that are starting to form from, from, from being torn apart by that, by that radiation. So adaptability is sort of the road on, uh, on the either, you know, yeah. in between like two swamps, the swamp of chaos on one side and fragility on the yeah, other. Yeah, that's right. And adaptability is sort of the, the median way. That- and, and so exactly. So if adaptability is kind of where you want to be in nature, you want, you, you basically want two things. You've got the selection pressure that is, you know, trying to figure out what's the pattern here and then to reinforce it, to make it better. But then you've also got another force which is saying, you know, what's the pattern here and how can we mess it up? How can we break it up? How can we add diversity here? And it seems, I mean, it seems obvious that we should be asking ourselves, so with this AI stuff, could we do more of that, right? Because that that adaptive zone where you're balancing the power to reinforce patterns and the power to see a pattern and and mess with it it's in that adaptive zone where learning happens where innovation happens where resilience to environmental shock happens right i mean that's basically the zone where you and i happened right where we're kind of exactly. where chimpanzees became became homo sapien sapien and and i and i just wonder if I, I don't. I don't think that we've gotten there. I don't think that there's really much conversation in society around like how can we be, how can you? Because I think it's hard to like. This is like the Tommy Shandell thing, right? Like, it's hard to imagine you'll get inspiration in chaotic places. I think that you know, or the the perfect analogy. I love we talked about the 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 housing crisis, mm-hmm. the mortgage crisis, because it, it you're thinking about a system and how to replicate it because you that you know we're by nature we kind of. You know that's what we want to do, and we we love optimization and efficiency, and yet mo- so much stuff in any field is serendipity, right? It's the, are things that are chaotic that you can't control, but it's hard to. I think that's hard to bank. It's it's hard to put that into, let alone AI. Just our own. I mean, w- w- despite the fact that we know intuitively and reflectively that chaos is as much the the context for fruitfulness as is order and, and systemization that there's an interplay there. It's hard to consciously be open to that, you know, because life is so chaotic already. Right. And, and we're like Hume said, human beings are addicted to causality. I mean, we like Mm. X because X, Y, I mean, all these things, I think the reason that's a challenge to do that with AI is a challenge for us to think that way, right? It's a challenge for us to challenge our own presuppositions and do mixing just in everyday, like, do conscious mixing so that we're aware of what we're not seeing, hmm. right? And what we're overlooking. Really interesting. And so if, if, if it's hard for us to own it and value it, how much harder will it be to teach artificial intelligence to factor it into the algorithmic reality yeah, yeah so you know I, so at this uh, conference i was at yesterday um really interesting was i'm just looking if i can find i don't even know how to find my own tweets um oh yeah so um it was the ceo of Condé Nast, uh wolfgang what is wolfgang's last name wolfgang blau i think oh yeah and yeah. um 
he was talking about basically, you know, the difference between what we know we should do and what we actually want and do. And, and, and so the, the context was he was being asked this question, you know, so what's the role of media in the world today, blah, blah, blah. But he said it, it, the top five answers to the question when you survey the public, what topics should media tell more of? Right. They're like, oh, yeah, we should have more stories on climate change and we should have, you know, more stories on, I don't know, like, you know, um, economic inequality, maybe, or what's going on in the rest of the world or good news story, like whatever, whatever that list is. I remember I just remember climate change was one of them in them. Yeah. The but, thing, the things you think if you want, if you said, I want to hear more about that, you'd be a better yeah, person. Yeah. So what topics should media do more of is, you know, you get one set of answers totally different from what media do you actually consume and what topics do you actually consume? Right. And so there is this, I mean, and I suppose this is just part of the human condition. There is this uh, misalignment. There is this uh, distinction, this difference between, you know, our, our aspirations and our appetites. And, 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 and that is exactly it that you say, like the, we, 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 you know, Maybe we understand that there is a real value to chaos, but we we feel more comfortable in a world that is ordered. And you see that throughout society, right? I mean, in a business context, you know, you're 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 looking at AI as a tool to become more efficient, right? To to make fewer decisions that don't deliver value within your current business model. Right. You're, you're not you're not looking for it to say like how could I lose money? <laughs> what are some new ways that I could lose money? Like I, I I I have enough of those answers. I want to I want to figure out ways to improve my profit margin. And, and and you see it, you know. So to bring it back to maybe our favorite topic, which is politics. I mean, so look at the algorithms that are driving. You know, what are the news stories that you consume? What are the news stories that I consume? If you're a Republican, I'm trying to. I want the algorithm to serve you stories that are going to get you to click through because then I get paid. And if you're a Democrat, I want to serve you whatever stories. I don't really care about the content, but but the algorithm does because they connect to uh, your propensity to, to, to view them, to click through, to spend time on them because those are the metrics by which I get paid, right? Mixing is inefficient. Mixing is a cost, Mixing is something to is is a kind of lost opportunity to monetize that I'm trying to eliminate. Right, because I don't want to, I don't want you to broaden your palette necessarily, because your narrow palette is the way I get clicks and make money. So I don't mixing. You know, I I, I don't want you to get new interests and things like that because that makes you less predictable. Right. No, that's right. Exactly. I mean, predictable people are very are 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 the best consumers. Right. You optimize your sales model and you perfect it, perfect it, perfect it, and you make and and that would be the way to make the most money, right? If you if you had consumer if if consumer society was something static, ugh, how much easier that would be for 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 business models. So my my point being that um, there is you know all of this pressure in society to optimize, and so it and so. When you bring new tools into society that that enable us to do that better, and then then a really big question becomes: okay, so how do we counterbalance that? Um, because 
we we do understand at least intuitively that um you know that there is a lot of mixing that is missing from society right now um and and you know and and this isn't this isn't an aspiration that is only sort of become true now i think it's always been kind of something that people could look at and say yeah if we could get more mixing to happen this would be good do you do you know andrew yang yeah Democratic yeah. Well, I mean, President I mean, he, he he doesn't return my calls, so I don't know if we'd say that. Well, okay. yours and mine both. But he, I mean, he is so interesting. Mm. He was just on the New York Times argument podcast. I I heard him a couple of years yeah. ago when he first a year and a half ago when he was trying to run before he was talked about. And I thought it was brilliant. But part of his freedom dividend, this idea that he wants to give every American, regardless of you know that's eighteen or over. Regardless of, you know, age, you know, once you're 18, uh, you know, gender, socioeconomic class, a thousand bucks a month. And he's like, look, most of this is just going to go right back into the economy. And the other thing is he thinks it values work. That's, he's like, my wife stays at home with our kid, two kids, one of whom is autistic. And the GDP does not value that at all. And he's like, if you put this into communities, you know, some people will use this to become artists. They'll have discretionary income to spend more time doing art and all this. And he's thinking of all the collaboration that if you could put some money into the into the economy that way, you know, into the people's hands that that people would do work that they're not currently doing. You know, mm. and am I still on or have I frozen? You are. I'm, you I are. still exist. I've just there's. I'm looking at a picture of myself drinking a cup of coffee, and it. Um, I guess you know I should screenshot that. It would be a good avatar image for myself. Oh, absolutely. <sighs> Yeah, and and so I mean that is a great example of, you know, when um, we're talking about. So the algorithms are optimizing, but they're optimizing within a simplified model of of reality, right? In the same way that GDP, you know, it's it's not measuring wealth or economic growth with you know capital E capital G. It's it's measuring what we're counting, right? It's measuring what we're able to measure and in some relatively efficient process. I mean, it's a useful abstraction, but it's not reality. And so if all you're doing is putting that data into an algorithm and saying, help me, help me grow this number better and faster, then to the extent that it sort of focuses attention on that, it's going to just enlarge the, um, it's gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna sort of increase the absence of. I don't know how to how to articulate, it, but you know what I'm trying to say. It takes us farther from these questions of what about all yeah, the stuff yeah, that we're not yeah, measuring, yeah. right? So, and, and so then the question becomes, you know, how? So what's the way out of that trap of getting so good at optimizing that because of the the things that we miss in the optimization model, we become fragile, whether it's as an economy, whether it's as a political community, you know, whether it is as a business that there suddenly there's a wild swing in consumer tastes and they just completely crash because they're so good at delivering that, that when people want something else, like, oh, we, we just have no capacity to deliver that. And it seems to me that there's, you know, two logical answers. One is, okay, so we've got to, we've got to feed more of reality into the system, right? We've got to feed into that algorithm, um, the, the, the people who are working from home, caring for the children, 
with optis, autism, which is doing good in society and for the economy, but isn't being much. So we got to feed those things in somehow, measure them. Maybe we all get sensors, and this is what Internet of Things is going to help us to do, is to, to collect much more data about the full gamut of human behavior. Or we've got to have some other mechanisms that 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 carry weight that that are persuasive and have influence in our decision making forums and processes that 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 haven't arrived at us through the you know the number crunching of data but but arrive you know through some other channel a, a sense of dignity um a a sense of community of citizenship Right. So, so, you know, I, I, I think there are those two strategies and, and we, we, I don't think we live in a world where it needs to be an either or, but I think we do live in a world where, you know, we need to very quickly, um, as citizens develop enough understanding of, you know, let's say, you know, what AI is and what its limits are. So that people don't feel like, oh, okay, I guess they've got all the answers, so we just have to defer to them. But instead, they feel some confidence that, okay, even if I don't understand the details of it, I know, I know kind of the role it can play, and I know the role that it can't play right now. And so that's the space for us to look at what it's doing and to argue that we need to do some other things as well. Because we can't just sort of abdicate the future to um, – to the techno utopians. Yeah. And I often think just on a very basic level, like the two things like that you're saying, like more, we need more of the world in, in, in the algorithmic kind of reality. And also we need to know what is it that we can't measure or whatever. Like, I, I feel like it's, it's some of it, just a base level is, is realizing when we feel the most comfortable and we feel like we, are comprehending something and, and we're not anxious that there's a lot more than we're seeing, you know, qualifying, quantifying that there's always more than we're experiencing. And, and if we're really like, if we're in a very kind of place where we feel like we've got a handle on things and we've got some semblance of control, that's really a sign that there's probably a lot more that needs to be put into the equation. Mm. Right. There's a, it's it's remarkable how I feel like my day has come full circle uh, because this morning I was sitting in a room with, you know, a bunch of, so a bunch of, uh, they call themselves circular economists. So looking at basically how do we move the material economy from the take, like take, make, waste is how they call it, right? Take it out of, extract it, manufacture, use, and then dispose into landfills when we're done. And that's not viable. Um Long term, so how do we get smarter than that? And it's beyond recycling, right? It's also sort of redesigning products to um, be able to be reused in in the the material economy. Anyway, it was a room of those kind of people and um, uh, a group of uh, Maori, so uh, New Zealand indigenous um, business people and. Uh, community leaders and elders who, you know, essentially look at that stuff and say, well, you know, we've been doing this all along. Uh, we've had a kind of holistic worldview about the economy and uh, the role of human behavior in the economy. Um, 
sort of since the beginning, and we don't really feel like we've we've lost that view. And I think for you know for the the holistic people in the world, I think that they would doubt that that the sort of the algorithms will ever get there because it's more than just are we capturing all the stuff that's relevant to us but the bigger step from say like our worldview to theirs is that you know for us it's all about us you know we're at the center of the story and for them you know it's sort of it's all about mother earth and and we're on the periphery of the story and so you know the the question is you know how how does mother earth feel about the things that we're doing and and she wants to she wants to be able to see what we're doing and appreciate it she wants to be able to see what we're doing with her resources and understand how it is improving or amplifying or adding to um the abundance of nature and it, you know and, and and so there is so much at a philosophical level that is uh, that separates a kind of you know holistic worldview from um, you know our modernity, which, which tends to be tends to be you know extremely fragmented. Right? Let, let's take everything in the whole that we can possibly label and analyze and analyze that. Um, but do you ever, through that process, get to some? kind of appreciation of the whole this part space approach now i'm getting down a bit of a rabbit hole as i talk aloud but but do you know what i'm trying to say like you, you can wonder yeah, yeah, you can no, wonder no, if you yeah. can get there uh, with that strategy or if you just need to at some point doubt uh, either an act of a leap of faith or a leap of doubt to say that you know a data-driven approach to reality to trying to you know figure out what's you know what is the good and how do we get there is always going to fall short. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Surely, I mean, you know, you haven't you haven't quoted like Aquinas or Hume or I mentioned Hume. You, okay, no that <laughs> I did mention, you did Hume. mention Hume. I did mention Hume. Oh. But yeah, it's no, interesting. I think that, if I, think... I can just sort of, you know, riff on that myself for a bit. I mean, I think it was it was Plato who wrote or saying that it was Socrates who said you know, Socrates was very skeptical of this whole writing things down thing. Yeah, 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 we, yeah, we, yeah. We, we it's, it's, yeah it's, in, it's in the Phaedrus, I think. The, uh, yeah, Plato's dialogue. Yeah, Socrates. Yeah, it's in. Yeah, it's the skepticism, skepticism about writing because we'll forget everything. We, we'll have pseudo wisdom, right? So, which is to say that you know maybe it is our conceit to fear that the technology is taking us farther from what is honest and true and real. I, I, I think I do have that conceit, but maybe it is the conceit of every generation that lives through significant sort of technological change that we, we want to have a suspicion about what is being lost. And, and eventually it becomes so deeply integrated into our nature that that it is it is just it 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 becomes part of our evolution yeah and i think that 
that mindfulness of the fact that we lose things hmm. and accepting loss hmm. and finitude, hmm. right? Accepting change and that we can't, you know, that, that real, and no matter where we are in the journey, the illusion of control is always that an illusion. But we can be more mindful regarding what's being gained and what's being lost, you know, and, and, and what, and, and I think. can be more mindful, yeah. With that, with that perspective, I think we've got a better shot at that adaptability space in between mm-hmm. chaos and mix. And if I could, can I, can I riff off that? I mean, chaos and fragility. Yeah, right? if I can build off of that. So, you know, I think, um, so being more mindful, I think, is important. And and I think I know something else that is very important for all of us as we kind of negotiate rapid technological change, and especially this data-driven stuff, is to um, maybe not be more skeptical, but to, yeah, maybe to be more skeptical and to to demand the evidence for the hype uh, and not just sort of take it on faith. And if I can take one minute and kind of give a, a very concrete example. So uh, at my university, Oxford, there's a, about five years ago now, a paper was published um, by a couple of academics, and it was about uh, automation and the future of work. And long story short, it predicted that about 50% of jobs, like current jobs, are going to be automated away by 2050. It was the paper that made future of work uh, a phrase. So it was a very influential paper. Um, and you know, it was presented at the World Economic Forum. Everybody started talking about this whole topic, and it became just kind of a truism that 50% of jobs are going to be automated away. That's the reality. So what do we do about it? And and no one ever really goes and reads the report. Uh, and, and it used an algorithm to make that prediction. And no one really goes and looks at, like, how is this algorithm constructed? What is the model, the simplified version of reality that that algorithm is is working with? And so, you know, if you actually go into uh, their algorithm, it's totally fascinating. So their study was based on a database of uh, occupations called ONET. It's an American database, has like a, you know, every every single kind of occupation that's in the statistical databases. And beside each occupation, it identifies um, like some of the uh, capabilities that are required to do that job. If you go to, there's a fun little website called Will Robots Will Robots Steal My Job? Will Robots Take My Job? <laughs> com. I think it's Will, yeah, Will Robots Take My Job? com. You enter in your job. I don't know if Podcaster is listed. Um, no. But let's say radio and television announcers. So you enter your job and it'll tell you that there's a, a 10% chance that radio and television announcers will be, uh, will be automated away. That website is driven by this report. So, because wow. you know, so so it's not like they went through every single job, and and tried to figure out, you know, given the capabilities that this job requires, how likely is it that a robot will do that by twenty fifty? Hey, clergy is zero point eight. Oh, okay. So you're safe. Good for you. Check out political scientist. Political scientist. Political scientist. Scientist. Four percent. Okay, so I'm okay. Now, now check out check out truck driver. 
Oh yeah, I'm sure it's going to be, be pretty high. One hundred right? truck driver, uh, industrial truck and tractor operations. Right, that would sure. be ninety three percent. Your automation right. risk level. Uh, you are doomed. okay. So, so the question is, so this, so, <laughs> I love this. Yeah, I love. Okay. I'm going to do. You, I'm going to be honest. You play all that. Day. Okay, we'll put it in the show notes. But so the but point I want to make is, so all these predictions are driven by a single algorithm. And the algorithm is based on this data, database. And, and the database had all of these job categories. And for each one, it lists what are the competencies that are required. And the way that the algorithm was built is they actually had a, they had a little workshop. They got a few people in a room. And they took about 50 jobs. They took a sample of about 50 jobs. And they said, so for these 50 jobs, here are the different competencies they require. Um, you know, which jobs do we think are going to be automated away? And then let's go into the list of competencies and let's, let's just try to, you know, discuss amongst ourselves which ones, which are the competencies that, that kind of carry the idea that this job might be automated. You know, so for example, manual dexterity. If a job requires manual dexterity, we're like, well, yeah, a robot could do that. So it's a good chance it's going to be automated away. Um, if a job requires, you know, or, or like doesn't require empathy for example, right? So they went through, and out of all of their... Like President of the United States, Yeah, right exactly. Now, does it does not require, does require intelligence, right. So anyway, they went through a list of about, I think there were a couple hundred, you know, competencies. And they came out with a list of nine. Nine competencies that they felt were good predictors of whether a job was going to be automated away. What you think about it is is a pretty a pretty thin base right yeah but then yeah. they but then based on those nine they then built an algorithm and applied it to you know the entire universe of jobs to predict yeah. how likely is it that yeah. all these jobs be automated okay so that's the setup now the fun part you're still on that website yeah so i want you to type in model, model. like a fashion model Models. Okay. okay now, what is it like? 98%. Okay. So, like, what the fuck? <laughs> Do you really think that I want uh, an algorithm or a robot modeling my, you know, clothing on the New York City, you know, the fashion runway? Depends if it's like a Battlestar Galactica, yeah, okay. like, silent. Anyway, so, but my point is no. Like this is totally ridiculous outcome of the algorithm that there's a 98% chance that models are going to be automated away. So what's going on there? But if you go back into the algorithm and you ask, so what are the competencies that they think um, mean a job can be automated away? So, and it's things like manual dexterity, right? It's things like, you know, doesn't require originality or fine arts skills. It's things like, doesn't require negotiation skills or assisting others. And if you go into this jobs database, models score low on all of the nine uh, competencies that they used in their algorithm. And yet, obviously, you know, models aren't something that you would want to automate away. I mean, there's so much of it is the human, the yeah. sex appeal, there's all this stuff going on, right? So that, I, that was a longer story than I meant it to be. But the point that I'm trying to make is that no one looked at um, that one report 
with, with, with that kind of just critical eye to recognize that like this yeah. isn't a probability that jobs are going to be automated away. Yeah. This is this is a, a, a very simplified crude model and you did an algorithm and it came up with some, you know, some useful estimates maybe, but it's not a window into the future. And there are all sorts of obvious errors when you try to extend that little simple model to kind of the full gamut of reality. And and the thing is that just yeah, this takes me back to, to – I've mentioned this before, I think, the podcast, the little book called Proper Confidence by Leslie Newbigin. But he says the first chapter is faith is the way to knowledge. And he just talks about how you – to gain knowledge, you have to trust, like, institutions, textbooks, all sorts of things, right? Like, And the second chapter is doubt is the way to the truth. Like, it's it, just like you have to have faith in authorities and things like that. You also, to get to the truth and sort out good knowledge, right, you have to doubt. And the, the the third chapter is certainty is the way to nihilism. That when we try to get beyond this interplay of faith and doubt, right? Like, you know, the knowledge and the truth sort of dialectic, that when you try to escape that kind of dialectic and try to get to certainty, that you'll become a nihilist. Because there's nothing, there's nothing better than this sort of faith-doubt dialectic hmm. that we have to engage in, right? And so it's here, like, you have an example of, People being overly credulous, right? Okay, the report's out. Exactly. There's nobody doubting, credulous, you know, yeah. doubting their doubts right. and stuff like that, yeah. right? Yeah. So, so in terms of landing this plane and getting somewhere practical, because some of the people in the feedback has been like, we you know, we love these conversations between you guys, but give me some more practicalities of things I can do with this. Okay, I, I heard you. Let me give you one. We hear okay. you. Okay, whether. We are empathetic. You can't replace Whenever you're us. on a room or you're listening to, you know, like some Facebook Live thing or a call-in show or, you know, somebody speaking on stage, any expert, raise a hand and ask the question, what don't you know? Like, like yes. what doubts do you have about your field and about what is knowable and known and being said in your field? Because what we really need to start have happening in uh, like across society and every domain is, you know, to stop having sort of these experts be the sage on stage who, who know it all and, and start having the experts be the people, which, by the way, is totally disempowering because we feel like I don't know anything and start have them being the ones who empower us by admitting. And here's the things that I don't know. And and here's yes, the limits of what this. I've been saying, because the more they do that, the more we all recognize the place and the role that we have to play in working with this stuff, in asking good questions, in 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 pushing back when the when what we do know, when the knowledge, when the expertise is taken beyond where it's currently at, to uh to kind of dictate agendas that aren't yet supported right, by our current state of knowledge. And, and, and I just, I just never see that. And as, as, as somebody yeah. who's often the expert on stage, I want to call, I, I want to call a talk radio show right now and ask, <laughs> yeah, that like, what don't you know? I, yeah, I mean, I, I kind of doom myself because now it's going to start happening to me whenever I'm on stage. And it's like, yeah, that's really, but what don't you? <laughs> I'm going to start tweeting, like tagging you on Twitter when I, where I know you're speaking, ask him what he doesn't know. Yeah. No, I, isn't that right? I just think that in terms of, if if we could just make that one ripple happen in society, you know how yeah, yeah. And, and and what it would do to accelerate learning, just across across society, um, because there is just way too much 
of people, you know, and, and I get it. I mean, making a living out of it too, um, sort of, you know, wrapping themselves up in the mystique of knowledge and expertise. Yeah. 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 But well, my friend, I love it. And let's, um, everybody out there, Chris and I don't know a lot and in upcoming episodes. We'll tell you more of what we do, <laughs> what not, we do know. not know. Boy, there's a, there's a license to talk forever. Hey, exactly. <laughs> I got a long list. My friend, always a Scott, pleasure. Good to be back in the cockpit with you. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to the Atlas project. We'd love to hear your feedback. Drop us a line or send us a message on Facebook. If you really like what we're doing, please rate us on iTunes and write a review. It helps so much as we're just getting off the ground. Thanks for listening and facing the new world with us.